I said, it's almost, if you remember back to the tragedy that happened at the Boston Marathon when, when someone had let off some IED devices and, and people were there and they put out the hashtag Boston Strong. Well, you didn't see, you know, someone else say, well, what about Chicago or what about Miami? It wasn't discounting other cities. What it was is just like we were unifying around a collective cause. So the Black Lives Matter is, you know, rallying around a collective cause that we want to draw attention to the fact that people that look like Ken James are being, you know, killed by the hands of police, you know, at a high alarming number that far outweighs the percentages of the number of black people that are in our population. You know, number of counters with black, you know, there's a lot of data that we don't have to get into, but that's how I'd answer it, is not to uh, take away from anyone else, it's to draw attention to a fact, and it actually is a call for unification. This episode of Beyond Aporia originated in the Howenstein Center's webcast, Lunch and Learn with Gleaves, available at www.gvsu.edu hc. Welcome to the Howenstein Center's live webcast, Lunch and Learn. I'm your host, Gleaves Whitney. Today, we tackle the toughest issue in the American experience, race. From slavery to Jim Crow to separate but equal to the modern civil rights era, nothing has challenged Americans more than living up to our founders' promise in the Declaration of Independence and Northwest Ordinance to recognize the right of African Americans and all people of color to full civic, economic, and social participation in American life. It has taken more than two centuries for us fully to embrace that the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness should not be dispensed according to race. To help us understand the difficult terrain of American race relations, as well as to the mountains still to climb, I've asked Ken James to join me. Ken is a Laker. In 1996, he earned his master's degree in public administration at Grand Valley and currently serves as the director of inclusion at the Grand Rapids Chamber of Commerce. Ken and I will explore the intersection of Black Lives Matter with our business communities, and we will dive into the racial inequalities within our nation, the current unrest and protests sparked by the murder of George Floyd, and the impact and response that we are seeing here in our Grand Rapids community. My conversation with Ken will go 30 or 40 minutes or so, followed by questions from our viewers. So feel free to begin sending your questions to us right away using your Zoom toolbar to do so. Ken, thank you for joining me today. Leaves, it's an honor to be here and uh, I am a Laker for a lifetime, so I'm in, uh, looking forward to our conversation. Go Lakers, way to go. go Lakers. Well, well, first, Ken, let me just ask you, uh, just because I want this conversation to be real, how are you and your family doing at this extremely disruptive time in American history? Mm -hmm. uh, I'll share a little bit later when we get into my bio about my family, but uh, I am married with three kids at home. And um, so thank you for asking that question. It is something, and I'm gonna throw a word out there. I'm gonna throw out self-care. So I actually share it with uh, some of my uh, teammates um, when the George Floyd incident happened, which was on a Monday, I began to get calls uh, from family, friends, and colleagues, and uh, I was absorbing a lot of tension and, and different things. And for a day or two there, I forgot about my own, you know, uh, opportunities to check out and, and to refresh. And then, then uh, once I do that, can still continue charging in this work. And so, um, since I reminded myself of the self-care, it's been going well. So uh, I check out when I need to and do the things that give me. Uh, that that um, refreshing uh, ideology, and then the next morning uh, I take off with it. And then also uh, with my kids, uh, you know, in the fall I'll have a eighth, ninth, and tenth grader respectively, 
uh, I've been uh, fielding their questions as well and answering them to the best of my ability. Good to hear. Well, to set the table for our conversation today, tell us a little more about yourself, you know, your family background, the community in which you grew up, your education, and what prepared you specifically to do the work of the Director of Inclusion at the Grand Rapids Chamber. All right, well, I'll, I'll share with uh, those that are listening. Uh, I call San Diego, California home, and uh, that is uh, attributed to, to the United States Navy. My dad was a career Navy man. He spent 24 years in the Navy, so me and my siblings were born wherever my dad was stationed at at the time. For me, that was San Diego, California, and being the youngest, uh, my parents decided to stay in San Diego uh, when, when he retired, and he took on a second career at San Diego Gas and Electric, so I call San Diego home. Um, so birth through high school, I was there. Uh, I attended Kentucky State University, which is an, his, an historically black college, um, on a football scholarship uh, many years ago. And uh, when I graduated with my bachelor's degree, wasn't quite sure uh, what I wanted to do, but uh, I heard about this fine institution, and I'm gonna date myself here, Gleaves. Uh, I graduated my bachelor's in 94. I moved here in 94 and started my master's uh, uh, full-time, and I was on a two-year plan. I was going to get my master's at Grand Valley and then go somewhere warm. And here we are this many years later, and I'm still here. <laughs> but, but, but I'm married. I have three daughters, so I am outnumbered at home. Uh, my wife is also a Laker, uh, so, so we have uh, strong ties uh, to the university. Um, and in that time that I've been here, my career has spanned uh, the different career fields of nonprofit, higher education, uh, corporate retail, and um, healthcare. Um, and so I've done a number of roles in there. I've held positions that uh, did training and development, affirmative action, equal opportunity, uh, recruitment and talent acquisition. But all of my uh, career, I have had a lens on diversity, equity, and inclusion. I've been with the Grand Rapids Chamber for the last three years. And right now I'm serving as a director of inclusion here at the Grand Rapids Chamber. Tell us more about what the director of inclusion does. Okay. So I am a point of contact for our members. The Grand Rapids Chamber has over 2,400 members. Uh, many uh, Grand Valley is a member of so many of the businesses, uh, you know, I could name that you would recognize. But uh, I'm a point of contact if they want to uh, have a conversation around diversity, equity, inclusion. And that could uh, apply to supplier diversity, growing uh, their own uh, employee force, um, resolving any issues that may have come up in their employee force. Um, and we do that through a number of programs. So we offer some tools here. We do an assessment uh, for diversity, equity, inclusion. Uh, we offer implicit bias training. Uh, we offer the Institute for Healing Racism, and we do some organizational and communication training. So these are all services that we provide. And also congr congruently with that, I uh, do the internal training for our team here to make sure that we are as welcoming as we uh, need to be for our members. And I think Grand Valley is a partner in some of these, are we not? That's correct. So uh, kudos if, if they're listening. Uh, we do uh, a lot of this work with the Division of uh, Equity and Inclusion at Grand Valley. So uh, shout out to Dr. J uh, Jesse Brunell and Dr. Marlene Kowalski-Braun. Uh, to name a few, I don't want to get name in, uh, names, but those are two individuals I work with very closely as we do this diversity work for our community. Well, they're, they're fantastic colleagues, I can tell you that. Yes. Well, I'm glad the Grand Valley is a partner in this important work. And uh, You've used a couple of terms. I just want to make sure listeners understand the definitions of the terms. So you use the term, for example, can implicit bias. Mm -hmm. What is implicit bias? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I'll answer that, and I have uh, some notes here to make sure I don't jump on my words. But implicit bias is the process of associating stereotypes or attitudes to toward categories of people without conscious awareness. So it's an implicit bias. It's something we all have, you know, believes. 
one of the things that we offer is implicit bias training because we want individuals to acknowledge that we all have biases because our life is just that. Everything that we've experienced has created our narrative. Then we're thrust into these diverse environments, maybe diversity at work, where we volunteer, where we worship. And then we'll encounter something and we'll see it totally different than someone else because of our experience. So we don't discount that experience, but because it's different, we may perceive it differently. And we wanna make sure how we react to that experience is, is part of our awareness. So we wanna bring some attention to that implicit bias. And I imagine also one of your goals, and of course there at the chamber as well, is to attract and retain talent in, in yes. a diverse workforce. Speak a little bit to that. Absolutely. So the work that we do at the Grand Rapids Chamber, uh, I'm part of a team, uh, overall business service team, and um, there are components to business success. Make sure, obviously, they have the tool they need, they understand their niche, uh, that they have a product that people want to purchase or they're doing a good or a service. But at the same time, a big part of that is their uh, workforce. So we want to make sure their workforce, if they are inclined to, mirror the community of which they serve. Uh, if their workforce is diverse, and we mean all lenses of diverse, not just racial, uh, you know, uh, socioeconomic status, gender, we can go on and on, uh, LGBTQ status. Uh, we want to make sure that, that, that workplace is welcoming because you'll see a lot of data on business that a uh, diverse workforce can outperform a homogenous workforce. But there is a caveat to that. They must feel welcome and included and can bring their authentic self to work. So the programs that we offer at the Grand Rapids Chamber help with that attraction and retention of talent by fully engaging the workforce so people can bring their authentic selves to work. A couple of other terms, let's get these definitions out of the way early in our conversation because we've been hearing them and I think there's, there's sometimes confusion over exactly what these terms mean, but would you please define systemic racism for us? Absolutely, uh, more than happy to do that. Uh, please, if you'll allow me, um, there are four levels to racism and we've been hearing the word systemic or institutional racism a lot right now because of what's going on in our nation and, and I'd love to, to give you my opinions on that but there is internalized racism, which, was, which is what lies within individuals. There is interpersonal racism, which is what occurs between individuals. And we tend to put, put a lot of emphasis on that because you can recognize that and you see it. But in addition to the internalized and the interpersonal racism, we have systemic or institutional racism. And that's the racism that occurs within institutions. And that's the policies, the practices, the things that keep um, you know, whatever is being marginalized down. Um, and then to go a step further than that, there's structural racism. So in the United States, we have a system of structural racism where the cumulative legacy of racism still exists in a lot of the entities that we have today. So again, to recap, there's internalized racism, interpersonal racism, institutional racism, and structural racism. And so, for example, the uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates has, has drawn a lot of attention in his articles in the Atlantic on say, the redlining in banks in Chicago, for example. That would be an example, I guess, of both systemic and structural racism, right. correct? Yeah. And for anyone listening, you know, redlining is, you know, the practice of uh, there's a certain part of town uh, that I think is uh, more geared toward uh, a certain you know, it's a good place for business. So they'll, they'll try to draw a line as to who can go in and to who can go out of that particular community. And it's, it's normally a red line. And so we'll still all, all the bankers and the financial institutions, we'll steer them to this part of town. Whereas there's another part of town where, oh, we're not as quick to invest in. You know, we'll red line over here, we won't do that. So there's a history of that right here in Grand Rapids. 
uh, where redlining has taken place. And um, as a community, we're still trying to recover. And how do you define white privilege? Another term we hear a lot these days. Yeah, so white privilege uh, is defined Gleaves, as the unquestioned and unearned set of advantages, entitlements, benefits, and choices bestowed upon people solely because they are white. Um, so that's the term of white privilege, and uh, and so people operate in that. And uh, and I'll go, you know, even a little further with that. You know, these are some very um, strong terms that I'm, that I'm throwing out, and there's a history behind that. And when we have these conversations, um, you know, we can talk about it. And so one of the things, and I think it, it ties in, you know, you had mentioned Black Lives Matter. When you talk about systemic racism, and you talk about white privilege, uh, I have an opinion. I, you know, I think that there, there is an extreme in any society. And so when there's an extreme of people that are racist, but I think most people um, are not just wake up in the morning and I don't like a particular person because of how they look. So let's just assume for a minute the majority of America feels that way. But by bringing attention to these topics, that uh, the way the country is set up, that white people can operate in a system of privilege, sometimes they can continue to perpetuate some of this systemic racism unknowingly. And, uh, and I think that is what is, is uh, causing a lot of conversation right now um, when we look at what has happened to George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery. I'm curious, since you run a lot of these workshops, you teach the tools for dealing with implicit bias and racism. How have your audiences here in West Michigan, for the most part, responded to your programs? And what's been the most rewarding part of your, your uh, interaction and the most frustrating part? Mm -hmm. Uh, Gleaves, I, I would answer that. I think overall, um, it's worth it. Um, I, I feel I have an obligation as a black man to continue this work. So anytime I can shed knowledge on, on white privilege, if I can address uh, what is an institutional racism and start to, uh, to break those things down. So overall, it's been favorable. People seek out our programs and uh, the chamber offers these programs and people leave impacted. Uh, but I, I won't uh, candy coat it. There are times where the conversation is challenging. Sometimes people are um, resistant to the term white privilege or they feel that it's attacking uh, their norm or they feel that um, it's, this is too uh, heavy of a burden, the feelings of guilt um, that, that are taking place. And so I try to say, I don't candy coat it. When you look at our history, it's painful. However, we have to acknowledge what happened in our past so we can move forward in our future. Uh, so, so I will say not what frustrates me, but sometimes I have to spend a lot of time having that conversation of people that are trying to get it and for some reason they're not getting it. And so we continue that conversation, but, but we, you know, we stay the course, um, we let the facts um, um, prove what it proves, and hopefully we'll do the change. And I'm driven by the fact that it's making a change. So uh, think of a, a pond that is uh, on a smooth day and it's just there and you throw a stone into the middle of the pond, but you get that ripple effect. So if each one reaches one, you know, eventually you'll start having a positive uh, ground swelling. So the work that I do impacting one person at a time, which leads to, you know, individual change, departmental change, organizational change, community change. Uh, I like to think that I'm, um, what I'm doing is making a, a positive effect. A really controversial term in some circles nowadays is Black Lives Matter. Now, mm -hmm. to me as a white man, when uh, originally from the South, by the way, when I hear Black Lives Matter, I think of two things. The first is, of course, Black Lives Matter. It's just, you know, it's just a statement of principle that 
we should cherish all life. Black lives matter, absolutely. A lot of people, I think, are also thinking of Black Lives Matter with all caps as, as a movement with a very specific organization and a very specific agenda. Help us sort out these two things uh, with Black Lives Matter. On the one hand, of course, Black Lives Matter. On the other hand, here's a, an organization with a specific agenda. Mm -hmm. uh, I would like to share my, my take on that. Um, and I, when Black Lives you know, Do Matter, I, I support that statement. But for anyone that's struggling with that, the intent, and th this is my interpretation of it, but the intent of that is not to alienate any other race. What it is is okay. to draw attention to what has happened disproportionately to people that look like me, to black and brown people. So if, if you'll take a look, there, you know, there's lots of data that um, you know, police brutality, uh, the, the, the different forms of discrimination, I don't have to list them all here, happen, happen to people that look like me or that are black and brown. So the notion of Black Lives Matter is to bring attention to that. What it's not doing is alienating any other You know, someone else say, well, what about Chicago or what about Miami? It wasn't discounting other cities. What it was is just like we were unifying around a collective cause. So the Black Lives Matter is, you know, rallying around a collective cause that we want to draw attention to the fact that people that look like Ken James are being, you know, killed by the hands of police, you know, at a high alarming number that far outweighs the percentages of the number of Black people that are in our population. You know, number of counters with Black, you know, there's a lot of data that we don't have to get into, but that's how I'd answer it, is not to, uh, take away from anyone else is to draw attention to a fact, and it actually is a call for unification. Okay. Well, you and I are old enough to remember. I know I'm older than you, but we both are old enough to remember the Rodney King video. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was close to your hometown, just up the road a little bit, uh, PCH1. Um, and we also remember, Ken, the uh, verdict, the jury verdict later. Mm -hmm. How did you, as a Black American, react to that? Uh, yeah, and actually, you know, and I think that latches to, to what's going on now in this regard. So um, 1992, we have the, the video beating of Rodney King. And so I, I was uh, in college at the time that took place. And I remember because as black men, uh, we said, wow, it's finally caught on tape. This is going to be exposed. And if you recall, as tragic as the video itself was, the riots did not take place until the verdicts came out. So after a video, and if anyone has seen it, you know, it's troubling to watch. But after that video, those four officers were found not guilty. That is what sparked the riot. Not, not the beating itself, as bad as that was, it was the verdict. Because again, that draw attention to the systemic racism. So again, as a black man saying here, I don't condone violence. I don't condone destruction of property. But I do think we should not lose sight of what has been the driving force behind that rage. And it is the, the calling of attention to systemic racism and what appears to be no action taken. So fast forward, you know, 20 years later, something similar happened. And so, uh, uh, Gleaves, I'll dive in. I've had people uh, from different races reach out to me and, and ask with the George Floyd statement, well, you know, why, why are so many people, you know, latching their wagon to someone that had a criminal record? And, and I say, Let's not look at the fact, you know, right, wrong, or guilty, but in this country, you're innocent until proven guilty. What you saw out there was a manifestation of many years of systemic racism, eight minutes and 46 seconds of someone being robbed of their life 
that was a, you know, started, that lit the fuse of something that was already laid. So in the midst of a pandemic, we have systemic racism come up. And so what you see of these protests that are still taking place across the nation is drawing attention to the systemic racism. So I would challenge anyone that's struggling with George Floyd as an individual, and I, I do think he was murdered, that's my opinion, uh, that's tragic, but, and I can see that playing out with me because the, the, the outcome was death and it didn't have to be in that situation. And so let's talk to the situation of how do we get to this point and how can we fix it? The other thing is you, you, you mentioned we're at an age long enough. Uh, I know I have uh, peers and then I have people that are older than me say, we've had these conversations for, for generations. When is it going to end? So I wanna be part of the force for change. You know, I'm about convening, I'm about collaborating, and I'm about unification. No, it's not gonna be easy. We didn't get here overnight. We're not gonna fix it overnight, but, but we're gonna to continue to work for it. So, so I think we should use this to collectively address that systemic racism. You mentioned, of course, George Floyd is central to this. And as a historian, I always ask, why now? I mean, why was the murder of George Floyd the spark that became a conflagration just two weeks ago on Memorial Day, Ken? I mean, what is it about this summer, this mm -hmm. June, this May and June? Mm -hmm. uh, I think that it was just, it was the opportunity to address this. So I mentioned two other names, Breonna Taylor, uh, many may be aware of that. She was shot in her home. Um, and, and that wasn't brought to light. And again, until some other things were exposed, we have Ahmaud Arbery, which again, something that happened uh, that, that didn't appear to be justified. But again, that's something that it may have been buried if, if, if a video hadn't leaked. So again, I think what you have here is, is George Floyd, uh, and, and my sympathies go out to his family, is what sparked um, a larger issue. And, um, and, and now is the time to address that issue. And in the midst of all of this, we do hear a number of people and commentators uh, who are highly thought of on television or on YouTube echo Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and ask, well, why can't we be colorblind? Why do we have to look at, at Mr. Floyd's race, for example? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and I would answer that, and Gleaves, I've had well-meaning individuals say to me, Ken, you know, I don't see race, I don't see color, and I know what they mean. I would challenge someone to say not be colorblind, but to be color conscious or color aware, uh, because I am an individual, you know, I, I have things, so, so why wouldn't you see me um, is my challenge to that. So, so again, if anyone out there, that's, I, I think I know what they're trying to say when they're colorblind, uh, that they, they don't perpetuate racism. However, um, I, think, I think we should move toward being color conscious or color aware. Um, and then I, we talked earlier about implicit bias. You know, there are some proven biases that, that people um, um, and stereotypes that people that look like me have to endure. Now, you just said a moment ago, you're interested in not just, you know, a, a, a narrow approach to this kind of reconciliation that you're looking at. Uh, so you're not just interested in say a democratic or a Republican approach or a liberal or a conservative solution. It sounds to me, and from our conversations that you're interested in a broad racial reconciliation that transcends any allegiances to a group. And I just, I want to ask you, based on your work, how do we actually get there? Uh, how do we get a new narrative going about our relationship with people who are different from us and who we tend to other? Uh, I, I think conversation and dialogue, but it has to lead to, to real action. 
So uh, one thing I can say to start is, is to listen. And like I said, this to me, in my opinion, it does transcend. You know, we talk about th this country and just to listen. So um, as a former athlete, I, I use a lot of sports analogies. And, uh, and so one that I'll share with you, there's many of them out there, but if anybody's familiar, NFL and, and uh, some of the prominent players get inducted into a Hall of Fame. And a couple of years ago, Champ Bailey, longtime defensive back for the Denver Broncos, was inducted into the Hall of Fame. And he used that platform at his, at his Hall of Fame induction speech to say, listen to the stories that we tell. And he told a, a story of a black man living in an affluent part of Denver, uh, how many times he was pulled over. And he would share that story with others and it was minimized. Oh, you're overreacting. Or, oh, you know, the police were just doing their job. And so that's just one example of when someone is telling their story, let's start by listening to their story because their reality is just that, their reality. So by listening, then we can say, okay, what has to happen differently? Because now I can take that with me. I heard Ken's story. Uh, I, I don't, that doesn't happen to me or I don't see why it's there. What can I do? to change that narrative. And so there, there's some other things on that. And so when you minimize it, you know, it might lead to, to a microaggression. Um, so, you know, I do have uh, times where I wanted to tell my story and people say, oh, Ken, I don't think they were doing it that way. Well, I know when I've been the victim of a microaggression and, and to do that. So I would say, let's start by listening. But then secondly, once we listen and we realize that there is a different narrative, how do we make that change for you? So, so uh, again, we have some, some tools that work at the chamber, but it's not about that. What we're talking about is bigger than that. There are other tools out there. I think it's to take the right step. What works for you as an individual? Make the step. What works for you know where you have influence, where you volunteer, where you worship, where you work, to help that organization or that institution make that step. So, um, so again, I think it does transcend everything, but it starts with listening and then um, you know being empathetic and then having action around that. Ken, I want to make sure that our viewers understand some of the terms you're using. So, for example, you just used the word microaggression. Could you please define microaggression and give us an example? Mm -hmm. I can do that. Uh, so, uh, again, I don't want to misspeak. So, uh, a microaggression are statements, actions, or incidents that are perceived as indirect or subtle, but are really unintentional discrimination, and they happen to members of a marginalized group. Um, so to, to give an example of a microaggression is, uh, um, Ken, you don't sound like a black guy. You're so articulate. How am I supposed to take that? You know, you're so articulate for a black guy. You know, that, that's an example. You know, did, did, did it bring tears to my eyes? Um, did it really hurt me? No. But, uh, but again, if that's the, the something, and I have to endure that every hour of every day while I'm at work, well, what is the cumulative effect of that? So, so that, that's an example of a microaggression. And so when I, uh, going back to the story I just share, shared, so if I'm talking to my employer and I say, you know what, I, I, I'm enduring these microaggressions and it's minimized, Ken, they don't mean it that way, Ken. That's not really happening to you. So then it, it exacerbates the problem. Uh, so, you know, but that, that's an example of a microaggression. Okay, thank you for that definition. Well, as we look at illustrations of ways to move forward. You know, you've, you've proposed several things. It's, it's, it seems to be in your DNA to want to try to reconcile and really be a peacemaker and a problem solver in this whole process in our country. How important is white allyship to this movement? Mm -hmm. um, I, I would reach out and say it's very important to the movement. Um, one, uh, we want to, to break down 
uh, those barriers. So again, you know, if if one be, if one that is white, this is my opinion of it, comes aware of their white privilege, just to share those narratives. But the other thing is, and I and I'll say this. So I, I do diversity uh, training uh, at a number of institutions. And hypothetically, hypothetically, if I walk into company X and I'm there to do some diversity training, well, as a black man standing in front of the group, I'm supposed to stand on a soapbox, people might think. But if someone comes in and says, this is why this is important for me, then it further the message permeates to some people that, that are saying, yeah, Ken is supposed to check that box. But when it's checked by a, a partner, an ally, someone standing side by side with me in that work, I think it just goes a little bit further. So I think one of the key ingredients to the solution, we're talking about what transcends, you know, uh, conservative, liberal, you know, whatever side of the, the political aisle you fall on, I think allyship will help bridge that gap as well. Here at the Houndstein Center, in particular at the Cook Leadership Academy, we put a lot of emphasis on trying to reseed common ground. We know we've lost so much in the last decades, and we're trying to find ways both procedurally to bring people together and figure out how to listen to each other, and also substantively, are there issues around which we can really reseed common ground and make progress in this country? I mean, as you know, I think you and I both share this view. We're in a democracy. It's no longer just a multi-ethnic democracy. A lot of people a few decades ago grew up in a multi-ethnic democracy. We're a multicultural democracy now. We've got to make this incredible democratic experiment work, and it's going to be hard work. So um, I guess I would like to know from you in all of your work, what is your message about the possibilities of reseeding, uh, finding, planting new roots for common ground? Mm -hmm. uh, and I heard that question, Gleaves, and uh, it's a great question. Um, I, I think we have to stay the course. Uh, so there's been some foundational things out there that we can't uh, you know, rest on our laurels. Um, I think we need to get beyond checking the box. And so what I mean by that is, you know, um, we, we have a, a chance to have real racial dialogue right now. And uh, my hope would be someone wouldn't take an opportunity to say, okay, um, we had a, a conversation around race in the month of June in 2020. Now everything's back to normal. Uh, so it needs to be something that we can do and sustain the work because it, it is about harmony. Um, I come from the business lens, and um, you know, if you have a, a workforce that is truly engaged, I talked about earlier, your chances of outperforming your peers go up tremendously. So, how do you have that dialogue so people can bring their authentic selves to work? Uh, so, again, using a hypothetical, I believe so. Somebody comes back to work. We're coming back to work in a post-COVID world. We have to have the internal capacity to have this racial discussion. So, if I'm coming back to company X. And uh, it's, it's uh, you know, 200 people on, on my floor here and somebody does wear a Black Lives Matter shirt, are we ready to have that discussion? And, and, and if not, what do we have to do to, to have it so, so that we understand, you know, you know, why it's there? So I would say, uh, you know, let, let's, let's not rest on our laurels. Let's not, you know, do a one-time check the box. How do we weave into the fabric of the foundations of our organization that we're having conversations around diversity, equity, inclusion, particularly it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition. We're going to be coming back to work in sort of this racial hotbed, mm -hmm. you know, of recent weeks. And how do we practice social distancing at the same time that we're trying to achieve a greater understanding and unification? It's, it's going to be particularly challenging, I imagine. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you assess what's been going on in Grand Rapids in our mm -hmm. community? Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that's a good question. There, there are a lot of tools there. I'm entrenched. 
uh, there. Uh, and but I do see a lot of unification there. Uh, you know, we have some some great leadership in our community. And so when you ask me that question, two things come to mind. So uh, you know, uh, a couple of Saturdays ago, we had a peaceful protest here. And uh, I saw three events that day, Gleaves, and others have shared this, and, and I'm agreeing with them. We had, we had a, a peaceful protest that uh, went over well, and then uh, as the uh, day turned to night, uh, we had a few agitators that, that um, did some destruction of property uh, that's there. And so, like I told you, I don't condone violence or, or, or destruction of property, but I also say that with, let's not lose sight as to what that spark was, and that was the, the issue of systemic racism. But the following morning, it, you know, this happened on a Saturday night, Sunday morning, if any of you were aware, we saw the best of our community show up and take care of the damage that was done. And so I drove through and saw people of different races, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic status saying, this is not our Grand Rapids, talked about the night before, this is our Grand Rapids that we can heal together and, and have this conversation together. So, so that's something that I manifested. And then, Gleaves, if you would allow me, I also would like to share, you know, we talked about systemic racism. If you haven't picked up, I try to share analogies to kind of paint the picture that goes home, that, that so, you know, kind of sink in. And so in this country, um, we all know we've had a, a, a Black president. You know, Barack Obama served two, two terms as our president. Uh, we have, who comes to mind? Oprah Winfrey. We have a Black billionaire. Um, but that doesn't mean racism is gone because we've had a Black president or, or we, we have a, a Black billionaire. And so that's the one thing that I would say for the, for the mainstream, we still have a long way to go. And you even take that down into this community. In Kent County, our Kent County administrator is a black man. Um, our city manager in Grand Rapids is a black man. One of the presidents of our local college is a black man. And they are phenomenal individuals and are doing a lot of great leadership in this work. But does that mean we don't have racism in Kent County? We have racism in Kent County, that, and that's what that's what I want to tell you. So, so even though we have black men in prominent positions, you know, I want to say let's not lose sight of, you know, that systemic racism and work to, you know, undo that. You have covered a lot, and you obviously have so much passion for this issue. I want to know. I think viewers want to know who really inspires you to do this work. <laughs> Uh, so, so uh, two things. So one, I, I do have a personal hero. Um, uh, my dad is one of the strongest black men that I know. Um, my dad was born uh, in the 1930s in a very segregated South, and uh, he joined the Navy and was able to provide for his offspring because of that. So we, we, thank, we thank our country for that. And he had a goal for all of his kids to, to get through college, and we've accomplished that. And, and then some, so, so we've all gotten through college and, and even have some uh, post-bachelor's degrees there. Um, so, so that is, is one of my, my heroes. And then also, in the work that I've done, um, I feel an obligation to, to make the world better than I, I found it, in my opinion. And um, there is a quote from 1936 when, when Jesse Owens was asked to represent the United States uh, uh, in Berlin during the Olympics and anyone can Google that and see how well Jesse Owens did. But um, he said, the measure of a black man is not how high he climbs up on the ladder, but how many other black folks he pulled up on the rung beneath them. And that mantra kind of works well with me, you know, when, when I'm, when it's all said and done, I'm not gonna do this forever. Um, if I can look back and know that I helped make a change and pull people up for the betterment on a, on a higher rung, then, then I, would, I would rest pretty easy.
Has faith played a role in your work? Uh, it is. That's an important part of my life. I'm very active at, at my church. Um, um, I, I go to Renaissance Church of God in Christ. Uh, Bishop Dennis McMurray is my pastor. And uh, I'm active at my church. But, uh, you know, wh whatever the God of anyone's faith is that's listening, um, um, you know, if that is part of what keeps you grounded, um, I think then, then, then we should secure, you know, you know to, to what does that. And, and my faith does help keep me grounded. Well, of course, you know, the civil rights movement was imbued with faith from mm -hmm. start to finish. I mean, mm -hmm. many of the leaders of the civil rights movement were pastors, ministers, mm -hmm. and um, I think their moral vision is what has helped sustain the memory of those individuals and the movement itself in our nation. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, we, uh, we have viewers who are queuing up to ask questions, but I want to ask you one more question myself before we go turn to the viewers. Uh, I'd like to know, uh, so you've had this career where you're very dedicated to racial reconciliation and teaching. What's going to be the capstone of your career? What's, what's going to be, you, you mentioned Champ Bailey. I'm mm -hmm. a Broncos fan, by the way. All right, all right, so. All right. So uh, I'm sorry. I know you were must have been a San Diego Chargers fan. Yeah, that's, a different, that's a different conversation. That's a different <laughs> okay. So I guess my question is, what's your World Series? What's your Super Bowl? You know, uh, so if, if Ken were to, to, to ride off in the sunset, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I guess I look back at people say, you know, Ken uh, was a man of character. You know, he did what he said. He said what he did. And uh, he left things better than he found them. Um, you know, that, that in itself would, would, would just mean the world to me. Um, you know, if, if I, that would be my swan song, um, you know, leaving legacies. But, uh, you know, I've been part of some inaugural things, you know, uh, uh, communities I've worked in, have established citizen police review boards. Um, I, I've uh, helped build some supplier diversity initiatives that are still in place. So I know that there are uh, women owned, minority owned businesses that are thriving now because of things I put in place. Um, you know, that watching it be successful is, is a pat on the back. Um, and that, that would make me, again, feel very good in my, at the end of my career. Very good. Okay, we've got some viewers asking questions, Ken. How should parents and mentors discuss the current climate with children? One viewer writes, that's a good question. That, that's a very good question. So, um, one, and this is my experience, and, and I'm married to an educator, so, so I, I have some education. Kids, kids are aware of the world around them, and uh, sometimes they need answers. So I would say age-appropriate books. Um, I would recommend um, to anyone to also let children see heroes different than the ethnicity that you might be. So I think it's okay to show a, a book, and I'm, I'm speaking of like elementary kids that that show women in leadership roles, that show people of color in leadership roles, just to let them know that that's part of the collective society. Um, and then be prepared to, to answer those questions. Um, also, sometimes it just takes ex exposure. So, uh, you know, the, the, the racism discussion, it can be very challenging, but a little diversification around, you know, a neighborhood that you go, you know, go have ice cream in a different neighborhood. Uh, so, so people can see, oh, I can do this and be comfortable around someone that looks different than me. Uh, you know, uh, go to a restaurant you wouldn't normally go to. So start with that foundational stuff and then let that build up into to a larger platform. Another viewer asks, could you speak to some of the work of the business community of Grand Rapids and how that community is responding to and challenging each of the forms of racism that you outlined for us earlier? Another mm -hmm. good question. 
Very good question. So one thing, like I said, the Grand Rapids Chamber is here to convene, collaborate, and to, and to bring unification. Uh, so we have tools with our businesses where we can meet them where they're at on their journey. So if, a t if, a, if an organization is just starting with the journey, we can meet them there. For organizations that may have been on the journey for a while around diversity and inclusion and it's kind of st uh, stalled or hit a roadblock, uh, we, can have that, uh, we can have that conversation as well. What I can tell you is there are many businesses, I won't call them by name, uh, that have started this, this journey and they're doing it for the right reasons, not to put it on the first uh, front page of, of when you're opening your internet or your, however you search your news, but they're doing it because it's the right thing to do for their employees, their organization, and their stakeholders. Um, so there are many things taking place uh, in this organization, I mean, excuse me, in this community, many things taking place in this community. Um, and, and there are many organizations to be commended doing that work. Another viewer asks, there have been many protests and movements all over this country and over the world, in fact, as a result of the murder of George Floyd. Ken, where have you found hope that there will be continued positive momentum and change here in Grand Rapids, in the nation, and in our world? It's an ambitious question. Yes, it is. It is. And this is... This is my opinion, others might disagree with it. Um, I'm gonna put a lot of emphasis on the word real when I say there needs to be real change. And what I mean by real change is, is um, I would hate for however long, two years from now, another incident to come up and things were the same. So now that we have an opportunity to have real change off of these conversations, I'm hoping we can do it. So when we draw attention to um, institutional or structural racism, that we can start to dismantle some of these things so that there is real change, so that we don't, we don't see these things continue to affect uh, uh, people of color. Another viewer asks, what you think the real changes can take place so that the black members of our community are safer? Again, this, this is my opinion, you know, with that. So, um, you know, as a male, and I, and I present, uh, uh, you know, as a large male, uh, I can tell you my experiences, and I'm not embellishing them at all, um, that sometimes I stereotype or discriminated against or treated differently uh, to do that. I'm hoping that those counter narratives, when I, when I said earlier, that when someone tells you a story and they listen, so I'm hoping that we can get some counter narratives out there. So one, we're minimizing negative interactions. Um, and then when we do that, we have a more uh, empathetic uh, response to things like, okay, you know, someone did break the law. They happen to be a person of color. Let's just stop the situation, arrest them, and, and, and treat them without violating their civil rights. So I'm hoping that, that and that's what we want to, to see happen. So, so again, I, again, I don't condone violence or anything, but the spark that set this off is, when you can see something play out like that for eight minutes and 46 seconds, you know, what we're talking about now, that has to stop. And if those things can stop and people sit down, really listen, make really, you know, uh, make that real change we're talking about, I think we can have a better world come out of it. I want to thank Emily Smith for submitting an excellent question. Well, Ken, is there anything else you'd like to mention that we haven't covered? Uh, you know, is uh, uh, th there's a couple of things, you know, so that come to mind is how can we um, have that have that conversation? So uh, again, I've had people, and I, I and again, where someone is at, I respect that you are at where you're at. But if you genuinely 
want to talk and have a conversation and come to me and say, Ken, help me understand. I don't understand, you know, why, why people are, are writing right now. Um, I will share with you why I think we are, which to me it's obvious, but, but again, I'll share with that. But take a step to meet me from my viewpoint, and I'll take a step to meet you there, and hopefully we can find consensus there. So there's that conversation, you know, that we're talking about. The other thing is um, silence. Uh, you know, for those of you that um, believe that Black lives do indeed matter, and if you're in a space where there are not people of color represented, uh, you know, that's where that white allyship can come in. Don't be silent. Uh, sometimes, you know, silence, you know, can can kind of go with the status quo. Um, so I would, you know, challenge respectfully that if uh, if you uh, are in a, an, if you have an opportunity to speak up on the behalf of anything that would better, uh, um, you know, the racial reconciliation. Uh, you know, it's not easy sometimes, but but please, uh, you know, we need that voice. Very good. Very good. Well, this has certainly been illuminating. Thank you, Ken James, for being my guest on today's Lunch and Learn. It has been both a pleasure and enlightening to speak with you. I think our viewers got a lot out of today's session. And I invite those who've tuned in to fill out the brief survey and let us know what you thought of today's program. I also invite you to zoom in or join us on Facebook at the same time Tuesday, June 16th, for our next live Lunch and Learn webcast featuring Jason Duncan who teaches American history at Aquinas College. Jason has written a wonderful biography of John F. Kennedy and is currently working on a biography of Martin Van Buren, who's a lot more interesting than you think. So tell your friends and colleagues about us. Till Tuesday, stay tuned to all our Hauenstein Center offerings and stay well. Beyond Aporia is a podcast brought to you by the Hauenstein Center for Presidential Studies at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Hauenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. The theme music was composed by Andrew Whitney. The Hauenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Hauenstein's legacy of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the pressing issues that Americans face. To learn more about the Hauenstein Center, please visit us at www.gvsu.edu hc. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. This is Gleaves Whitney.